Good morning. It's so good to see you this morning. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to Christ Community Bible Church. And we've come to that portion of the service where we open God's word and we allow him to teach us. And as Charles read, we will be in the, the book of 1 John, continuing our work there. And we've just concluded some difficult passages, difficult to hear. It was more than 30 years ago, and I was a young lieutenant in the Air Force and a young believer, and I was trying to, to, to grow. And so I was reading my Bible, and I was in the Gospel of John, one of my favorite books of the Bible. And I got to chapter 13. And in chapter 13, we have the scene where, where Christ washes the disciples' feet. They share the supper together, the meal. Judas leaves to betray Christ. And then Jesus says this. He said, a new commandment I give unto you that you should love one another. Just as I have loved you, so must you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I struggled with that. That was tough for me. You see, I was looking at this word commandment. Now I was in the military. I knew what a command was. I knew what an order was. You followed them. And I see the word commandment. And then I see what I'm supposed to do. I am supposed to love others as Christ loves me. That's impossible. You see, it, it didn't take a lengthy examination of my heart to know that I failed. I didn't have to take a lot of time and wonder how am I doing in that area? Because I'll tell you, I didn't have that love. And I struggled with that. And see, and it doesn't get better if you go to the next, the next chapter because it only, it's only made worse in chapter 14 because Jesus then says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So I tried to, to rationalize this. I said, well, maybe it's not a commandment. Maybe it's just some sort of lofty goal. This is an aim. This is, this is something out there. I need to try to do that. But I, I couldn't get past the word commandment. And like I said, not only does Jesus say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He repeated it. And then a third time in the negative and said, if you don't keep my commandments, you don't love me. That was harsh teaching. And I was struggling with that. And, and I was looking at myself. I'm a failure as a Christian. I'm not able to do this. And I had a wash over me. I had guilt for not being able to do it. And then I had discouragement because I didn't think I could do it. It seemed impossible. And I'll tell you what, if I would have then gone to this letter to first, that we call 1 John and read what we've been studying the last couple of weeks, I would have had more guilt and more discouragement. Chapter one says, we do not have fellowship with him if we walk in darkness. I'll confess to you, my walk sometimes takes dark turns and I'd be ashamed if light was shown on it. Chapter two begins by saying, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Well, we've been studying 1 John now for weeks and I've not stopped sinning yet. 
not doing so well. And he goes on to say that if we do not keep his commandments, the truth is not in us. I'm also supposed to walk in the way that Christ walked. And if I hate my brother, I am in darkness. To hear a fellow Christian say, you should be living like this or you should be doing that can be discouraging. But to hear the Apostle John say that to me under inspiration of the Holy Spirit can be downright defeating. And that's where we've been in this book of 1 John. Now, we know why John was writing this. You see, subtle but dangerous con men claiming a secret knowledge of Christ had crept into their churches. And this secret knowledge had these plausible sounding arguments that called into question some of the most sacred documents of the Christian faith. And some people began to wonder, do I really have the truth? Is what the apostles led me to believe actually true? Is that real? Do I have eternal life or don't I? According to the false teachers, they didn't. According to the apostles, they did. And so John puts pen to paper and writes a letter with one grand ultimate design. And when John wrote these things, he was the apostle John. He was speaking and exercising his apostolic authority to refute false teaching and to unashamedly declare the truth. I love the fact that this aged man, this aged apostle still had a lot of fight in him. You see, when the wolves threaten the sheep, the shepherd is prepared to protect them. But today, in verses 12 through 14, we're not going to hear from John the Apostle, but we're going to hear from Pastor John. John the Apostle had to meet the false teaching head on and lay out some biblical truth. Yet by the time of this letter, he was an old pastor and he knew some of his flock would read this and they could become discouraged like I had become discouraged in my own walk. They would see the same things that I saw and instead of seeing the love of Christ and the endless grace of Christ, they would see failure and they would feel guilt. So, Pastor John takes time and he carves out these three verses to encourage the flock and to provide assurance to them. Hear what he has to say. He says, beginning in verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. This is a message for us all, but especially for those of us who sometimes feel like failures as Christians. It is for those of us who sometimes think the Christian life is too hard. These commandments are too difficult. I'm too ill-equipped. I can't do it. And everything the Apostle John has said up to this point is true and we must take it to heart. 
Here in these verses, we hear from Pastor John as he now comforts the flock and he provides some assurance. So let us pray and ask the Lord to guide our hearts and our minds through time in his word this morning. Oh, gracious God, we come to your word this morning expecting to hear from you. But when we get even tiny glimpses of your holiness, all we can see is our filthy sin and that frightens us. We allow our minds to concoct narratives of guilt and shame that discourage us from wanting to fellowship with you. So like Adam and Eve in the garden, we try to hide from you. Yet we gladly declare this morning that you alone are worthy of praise and honor for you alone are holy and righteous. You created all things and called them good. And when mankind, the pinnacle of your creation rebelled, you had mercy and compassion and you promised salvation. In your perfect timing, you sent your own son to become fully human while remaining fully God, that he might rescue us from sin. He was born into humble beginnings and he lived a perfect life. He was crucified for our sin and he rose again from the dead. Now all who put their trust in Jesus, your son can have eternal life. We praise you for your love and mercy. And now as we come to your precious word, Lord, we ask for wisdom and understanding. Help us to grasp the wondrous truths given to us by the apostle John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. May your word encourage us to seek greater knowledge of you, sweeter fellowship with you, and a deeper love for your holy word. Lord, and I pray that you will use your servant, though frail and weak and greatly flawed, to declare your truths from your word. Let me speak love and truth for your name's sake. Amen. Now, if you have your Bibles open to chapter two, you might notice that verses 12 through 14 kind of stick out. Perhaps your translation has them written a little differently. They're indented. They're written like more like poetry than what you see in other areas of the text. And you might see that there are slight variations in the wording of it, but don't let that distract you. This passage has a couple of things for us to learn. First, there are truths in here that we need to remember so we don't get discouraged in our Christian walk. And second, we're going to see that the Christian life is a process of growth. And in fact, that's where we're going to be going this morning, seeing spiritual growth in our lives. And John doesn't present this in a, in a linear manner like the Apostle Paul might. He has a literary, literary style of repeating things and coming back to them. Sometimes they're unchanged. Sometimes they're different. Sometimes he amplifies them a little bit. This is his way of teaching. And as we read the text, one of the things that pops out to us is he's talking to three different groups. He mentions children, fathers, and young men. And John is addressing the different spiritual levels or different levels of spiritual maturity in the body of Christ. And although he uses masculine terms of young men and fathers, he's, he's applying these to all in the body of Christ, men and women. This is about spiritual maturity. And we should notice from this that even mature believers must remember that we are like children 
and that we need continual instruction from our Father and that we are always dependent upon Him. And when we think about spiritual life, we must think about growth. See, this is what we see all around us in plant life. When we plant a seed, it grows into a tree or a bush or a flower. Baby animals grow up to be adult animals. And this is also true in the spiritual realm. We're intended to grow in our faith. We're expected to grow. Nobody wants to see the 40-year-old man still living in the basement of his parents' house. He's expected to grow up and to move out. Likewise, nobody wants to see a believer who 10 years after his conversion is still unable to chew on the meat found in God's word. The goal of spiritual maturity is to become more like Christ. Scripture tells us this in Romans 8, 9, it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's our goal, to be more like Christ, to be made like him. And earlier in this chapter, in verse six, John says, we ought to walk in the same way in which Christ walked. That's, a, that's growth. We grow into that. Ephesians 4.15 says we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And just prior to that verse, beginning in verse 11, Paul wrote, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. You see, the Lord Jesus designed this church and he gifted every believer to bring us all to maturity in Christ. And that's what we're about Spiritual growth is another way to describe sanctification. Our sanctification kind of comes in several flavors. There is positional sanctification. That occurs when we're saved. This is what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians when he said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You see, at the moment of our conversion, our sins are forgiven. They are gone. All our past sins present sins, and even future sins are covered by the righteousness of Christ. We also call that event justification. There is yet a future sanctification, the ultimate sanctification, when we will be completely separated from sin forever. We also call that glorification. But in between those, while we live on earth as believers, we have progressive sanctification. That's just a fancy way to, stay, to say spiritual growth. And we need to remember some truths about spiritual growth so that we do not have any misunderstandings about it. To be clear, spiritual growth has nothing to do with our standing before God in Christ. That has been settled. When we put our trust in Christ, we are covered by his righteousness. We are not working off time in purgatory there is no purgatory. We have been forgiven. Christ paid it all. 
There is nothing left for us to pay. And this is what Paul talks about in Philippians 3. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So no matter where you are in your spiritual growth, your standing before God is secure. 2 Corinthians reminds us, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So it doesn't matter if you're a spiritual child or a spiritual young man or a spiritual father. Our position in Christ is settled. We are all saved. Spiritual growth doesn't have anything to do with our standing. Secondly, our spiritual growth has nothing to do with God's love for you. That's a relief. I mean, how many times when you sin yet again and you come to the Father to confess and you wonder, is there still forgiveness left in this well? I've been here so many times. Can he still love me even after this? The answer is overwhelmingly yes. You see, our spiritual growth is not dependent or God's love is not dependent on our spiritual growth. In fact, he loves us so much that he's gonna keep working with us to help us to keep to grow. The night of the last supper, we're told in the gospel of John that Jesus knew the crucifixion was very soon. And this is what John writes. He says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. To the end of what? To the end of his life? Well, he rose again from the dead, kept loving them. It was to completion, to perfection. The Lord loves all his children to perfection. And the disciples at this point were immature believers. They were doubters, deniers, and deserters. Just prior to this, they had been arguing over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. They were filled with pride and yet they scattered when Christ was arrested. Yet Jesus loved them to perfection and he loves us to perfection. The love of God and the love of Christ towards us is not dependent on our spiritual maturity and our spiritual growth. That, is, that too is settled. Our spiritual growth is also not about time. You see, we don't measure spiritual growth by a calendar. Just like the 40-year-old man still living in his parents' basement. Unfortunately, there are Christians who have been believers for a long time and yet remain immature in their faith. The Apostle Paul had to deal with older, spiritually immature believers in his first letter to the Corinthians. He wrote, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you're still in the flesh. You see, time doesn't automatically make you grow in maturity. And this was not Paul coddling a young child. This was an indictment about believers who have not matured spiritually. The writer of Hebrews had the same issue 
He said, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You see, it's not time that makes somebody mature in Christ. The final two points are also similar to each other. Spiritual growth has nothing to do with the amount of knowledge we have or about the amount of activity that we do. There are individuals who have acquired vast amounts of biblical knowledge and systematic theology, and yet they're woefully immature. Unless knowledge is pure and applied to conform us to Christ, it does nothing but fill our minds with facts. As John MacArthur says, this is actually dangerous since the more biblical knowledge we receive but do not apply, the more deceived we are about our true state of spiritual maturity. And likewise, just being busy in the local church is not a sign of spiritual growth. You could lead a large organization. That doesn't make you mature. It's not even a sign of maturity. It's not the size of the church or the influence that you have or the number of books you've sold. That does not lead to spiritual maturity. Scripture defines spiritual growth in a number of ways. First, in 1 Timothy, it's pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. In Romans, it's being transformed by the renewal of your mind. In 2 Corinthians, it's perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In Philippians, it's pressing towards the goal. Spiritual maturity is not mystical. There's no secret to spiritual growth. When I see book titles that say the secret to the spiritual life, there is no secret to the spiritual life. That doesn't exist. And just as we must feed our physical bodies to grow and to mature, we must likewise take in God's word, believe it and respond to the truth to grow spiritually. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Spiritual growth is directly correlated to our intake, understanding, and obedience of God's word. Now, John did not write this letter to make people doubt their salvation. Although, after reading what he wrote earlier in this letter, it may seem that way. I know that I feel the guilt sometimes when I read what we are supposed to do. And although that we have not gotten there yet in this book of 1 John chapter 5, he tells us what the purpose of this letter is. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, the purpose of those earlier tests that we saw in chapters 1 and 2, they were to help believers discern false teaching from truth. Those were the tests. That's, that's what was to help us. It was designed to help us understand authentic Christianity versus the snake oil religion the false teachers were peddling. That was to help us. It was not an indictment on us. And now Paul, is in, Paul John is encouraging us in these verses to understand that. And he begins this passage, verse 12, by addressing the readers as little children. And this is the way 
the Apostle John shows endearment to all the believers. He uses this term seven times in this letter. Other times he'll refer to the flock as beloved. John was known as the apostle of love. And in this letter, he's caring for his people. In one sense, he's reminding us that we all need to continue to receive instruction like little children. And like little children are dependent upon their parents, we too are dependent upon God for all things. And we are to remember that. John learned this lesson from Jesus. In the gospel of John, Jesus referred to the disciples as little children. He used that term the night he was betrayed. In fact, it was right after Judas left to go betray him. And when Jesus gave the new commandment, he called the 11 remaining disciples little children. Then he spent time instructing them and teaching them before he was arrested and crucified. So when John addresses this to little children, he's talking to all believers since we all need instruction and reminding of our dependence on God. So how does he address them? What is his first instruction to them? He says, I'm writing this to you because your sins have been forgiven. This is true for all believers, no matter their state of spiritual maturity. At the moment of conversion, our sins have been forgiven. This is one of the great truths of Christianity that separates us from all the false religions of the world. We do not earn or work for our salvation. God forgave us our sins. Ephesians 1 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. John wants to assure us, your salvation is not dependent upon your spiritual maturity. You see, that's fixed. That's done. And he tells us why. He says it's for his namesake. It's not for John's namesake. It's for Christ's namesake, for God's namesake. All of this is for the glory of God. God did not forgive us because we earned it. He did not forgive us because he knew one day we would merit forgiveness So he forgave us. We do not deserve this forgiveness. We do not merit it. We are not worthy of it. And that's the beauty of it. You see, if we didn't do anything to earn our salvation, what could we possibly do to lose it? We talk about the doctrine of election and how God, before time began, as Jared put it in that conversation within the Trinity, our names were mentioned that we would be the ones who were saved. That was all God's doing. As we saw in the council uh, canons of Dort, that it was God, it was Christ who gave us that ability to to have faith to believe. We didn't do that at, at all on our own. We are forgiven so that Christ may be glorified. And this isn't a new concept. In the book of Psalms, it says, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. The psalmist is saying that God's glory, the glory of his grace will be put on display for the whole world to see when God forgives us our sins. 
and even the pardoning of great iniquity is to the glory of God. We see the same thing in Psalm 79. It says, help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. He is saying, put your glory on display as a forgiving God. Put your love and your grace on display for all to see. So they declare your glory. We can pray, oh God, forgive my sins so that you may be glorified. He is glorified when he forgives us our sins. Our sins have been forgiven. John writes, little children, I write to you because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake, because it pleases God and it brings glory to him. And after John addresses all believers to assure us that their sins have been forgiven, he addresses now different levels of spiritual maturity. And again, even though he uses terms like young men and fathers, he's not referring to male, female, he's referring to all believers, but he's putting them on a continuum of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. He says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. And I write to you children because you know the father. Now we're gonna look at this in sort of a little reverse order. And although John calls all believers little children in verse 12, he uses a different word for children in verse 13. And he's not referring to the same people as in verse 12. All believers are included in verse 12. But here he uses a word that has a meaning of a child still under a parent's instruction. These are the believers who still need to be externally trained, to be externally instructed. In other words, they're not yet able to feed themselves and they need more mature believers to assist them. John tells them he wrote to them because they know the father. When a baby is born into the world, the baby will naturally recognize their parents. They understand and delight in that relationship they have with them. And likewise, a spiritual child recognizes the father and delights in the father. What they know is their sins have been forgiven and they now enjoy a new relationship, one they've never have experienced. They can now pray differently than they've ever prayed before. They can now rejoice in God's creation now that they are new creations themselves. They can now worship God with a joy they've never known before. You see, they have surpassed the knowledge of even the most learned unbelievers. Unbelievers can know a lot about God. They may in fact be more schooled on scripture and in theology, yet the superior advantage even a new believer has is that they know the Father. They do not just know about him, they actually know him. Think about it this way. Imagine you're a huge baseball fan. You collect cards and other paraphernalia about the game. You have a favorite player, say someone like Roberto Clemente. Yes, I'll be dropping all Red Sox references and we will be using the Pittsburgh Pirate references today. <laughs> so I was a huge Pirates fan growing up. I grew up in central Pennsylvania and I was a huge fan of Roberto Clemente. I even have his Wheaties box on display in my kitchen yet today. 
Now, say you're his biggest fan. And, and that by that means you have all of his cards. You've got probably multiple autographs of him. And you know all his stats. You can probably name every great play he ever made. You could probably recite his batting average year after year. But you've never met him. Though you know a lot about him, you don't have a relationship with him. Now, contrast that to a new believer in Jesus Christ who has entered the most amazing relationship of all time. They now know God the Father, the most high God, none greater, and they know him. There's a world of difference between knowing someone and knowing about someone. One is relationship and the other is just about facts. So the apostle John, the pastor John addresses young believers and assures them, you know the father. You have a relationship with the father. This is also a direct refutation of some of the false teaching that was creeping into the church. We suspect that one of the reasons John wrote this letter was to address some of the very early stages of a false religion, which we now call Gnosticism. And one of the tenets of Gnosticism is that God the Father is unknowable. In fact, they, they created this scheme of where there was this God, they would call him Father, and they would call him the unknowable Father or the unknowable God. And in fact, one of the great sins that would be, cre be, uh, be done by other gods that were created was they tried to know him. And so they had created a system where you could not know God. And the apostle John is saying, no. Children, I write this to you because you know the father. You have that relationship with the father. They had held to a belief that God could not be known. The personal God, Yahweh, was in their crosshairs. God had revealed himself to Moses and gave him his per personal name. Yet this false religion was trying to discredit scriptures and what they teach about God. So the apostle John lets them know that you can know the father. And John reminds the young believer, but this knowledge is the knowledge of relationship. It's an elementary understanding of what it means to be a Christian. While it's an amazing thing, the difference between heaven and hell, we do not want to stay here. For it is this group that is tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, and the deceitful schemes of false teachers. So the next group that John, we're going to discuss, that John addresses are the young men. Again, this is not male. It's a level of spiritual maturity. And what does he say to this group? Well, he says the same thing twice in verse 13 and verse 14. But then in verse 14, he's going to expand upon it. He says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. In verse 14, he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. 
This is the progression of spiritual growth. It moves beyond relationship to, a more, to more knowledge about God. It begins with the declaration that they have overcome the evil one. And who is this evil one? You know who it is. This is Satan. And John tells us we have overcome him perfectly. In other words, we have overcome him and that has continuing effects to this day. He is still overcome. But you ask, how is this possible? See, I still struggle with sin in my life. How is it that I've overcome him? I don't feel like an overcomer, but instead I feel like one who keeps losing battles. Although Jared will cover these in later chapters in, verse, in, in chapter four, verse four, chapter five, verse four. He says, this is how we overcome him. It's because he who is in us is greater. That's how. How do I overcome the evil one? Because Christ living in me is greater by far than the evil one. Chapter five says, the victory, has overcome the, world. the victory that has overcome the world is our faith. So again, this was done on our behalf. It was done for us. We've overcome the evil one because Christ overcame the evil one on the cross. And believers are in Christ. Christ died for our sins that we could all be forgiven. And he lives in us so we can have victory over the evil one. But see, John amplifies this in verse 14. And he says that the young men are strong. How did they get to be strong? He tells us the word of God abides in them. Proverbs 20, 29 says the glory of young men is their strength. That strength is exemplified when they grow beyond the dependent child stage and they begin taking care of themselves. Spiritual young men are the ones who know the word of God. They know doctrine. They study the sacred scriptures and they apply it to their own lives. They do this and they grow in faith and understanding. Spiritual food leads to spiritual strength. If anyone comes along and tries to convince them that Jesus is not God, they don't buy it, not even for a moment. They're strong in doctrine. They're strong in the scriptures. In fact, they'll probably want to fight against that false teaching because that's what young men want to do. They know the truth and they will stand for it. If someone else comes up to him and says, there are many paths to heaven, these young men will draw their sword of the word of God and declare it is written, no one comes to the Father, but through Christ alone. The young men know the scripture, they know the doctrine, they know the truth, and they will stand against that false teaching. And yet, they'll still struggle with sin. We all struggle with sin. But one of the things that happens as we grow and we, we mature spiritually is that we're more aware of the sin in our lives. We see this in the life of the apostle Paul. When the apostle Paul was early in his ministry, he was seeing sin in his life. And so he compared himself to the other apostles. And he said, I'm, I'm the least of the apostles. So if you were to, to, to line people up and stack them up, you'd say, well, here are the sinners down here. Here are the believers. And here, is, here are the apostles up here. And he said, I'm the least of the apostles. By the time he was midway through his ministry, he was more aware of the sin in his life and he was battling it. And he said, he's the least of all Christians, the least of the believers. He moved himself down here because he, he sees the sin, something he hadn't seen before, he sees now. 
and it grieves him greatly for it. By the end of his ministry, towards the end of his life, Paul, who has been battling sin his whole life, now described himself at the very end as the worst of all sinners. You see, not that he was a greater sinner over time, not that he sinned more over time, but that as he grew spiritually, as he matured spiritually, the sin in his life was made more evident. As he knew more of scripture, he could rightly discern sin in his own life. And he fought against it. The final stage we see are the spiritual fathers or the spiritually mature believers. Twice John says, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. These believers have moved beyond just knowing the law and they now know the lawgiver. In this case, it is, they know him who is from the beginning, Christ Jesus, our Lord. This statement has so much packed into it, we could not exhaust it if we studied all of scripture across all time. But again, embedded in this statement is another refutation of the false teaching invading the church and the false system that, that became Gnosticism. One of the tenets of that was Christ was created. Oh yeah, they had Christ in their belief, but he was created. And so John here, he's deliberately acknowledging Christ is from the beginning. What they said is false. And this also points us back to verses four and five of this chapter. Knowing Christ is to keep or obey his commandments. You see, the more we grow spiritually, the more we grow in our faith, the more we keep the commandments of God, the commandments of Christ. That's maturity. Mature believers are eager to keep the commandments of the Lord. You see, mature believers don't see this as a list of do's and don'ts. They see Christ. And they know that by keeping Christ's word, by keeping his word, they become more like him. The ultimate goal of spiritual maturity, to be more like Christ. Believers move to the stage of spiritual maturity when they want to know the character of God. They see points of doctrine and connect them to the whole teaching of scripture, which points to him. So here's the encouragement. Here are the three truths that we are to remember. Our sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. So when you're accused, when you wonder, when you struggle, when you sin again and again, when you look at what the scripture says and you go, that's impossible for me. We know our sins have been forgiven for his name's sake, for his glory. It's been done. We also know that we have overcome the evil one and we know him who is from the beginning. I want to encourage you with these truths. Do you get discouraged in your spiritual walk? Do you sometimes lose your cool too quickly or for some trivial reason and you begin to question your own maturity, your own faith? How about this one? Do you fall asleep while praying or reading scripture only to feel guilty so that you stop? Do you see others who seem to be better at certain parts of the Christian life? They're better than you and you compare yourselves to them. Perhaps they, they just have an incredible ability to memorize scripture and they can recall scripture far better than you can. 
Or maybe they just, you think they just say better prayers when they pray aloud. Or someone who always just seems joyful and never seems to be impacted by this world or this life. Remember the truths of this passage. We have a relationship with the most high God. There's none greater. Our God loves us and he's done for us already what we could not do, what we cannot do for ourselves. And he has not given up on us. He has not left us to ourselves to figure this all out. And he also gave us his word. Jesus prayed just before his arrest, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We have the very word of God. If you are discouraged, we can hear directly from him. So what do we learn from this? Well, first I must address this. I want to talk to anybody who's listening to this discussion about relationships and about knowing God, knowing Jesus. And you realize you don't know him. Please do not leave here without talking to one of us. There are men and women here who would gladly drop everything else just to talk to you about your relationship with God. Or perhaps God seems distant and the relationship has been marred by neglect in your life. Come and talk to us. We talk about redemptive relationships where my highest priority is your spiritual growth and your highest priority is mine. We take care of each other. If that's you, come talk to us. I'll be here. Jared is here. Tommy is here. Gloria, for women right there. I know they would love to talk to you. Next, we must know the truth to overcome the false teachings that will surely come our way. This means that we must all be more in the word of God. Here's the goal for you and for me for 2021. May the Lord say this of us at the end of 2021. You are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Dedicate this year and every year to your own spiritual growth and to the growth of others. And finally, do not miss the goal of this. Our goal is to know Christ who was from the beginning and by knowing him, we can become more and more like him to the glory of God Almighty. Let us pray. Holy Father, we are again confronted by the relevance of your word, its power, its clarity. And though it is an ancient document, it unveils for us timeless truths for all mankind. We thank you for the assurance you give to us. And oh gracious Father, we thank you for the encouragement We thank you that your servant, John the Apostle, took time to reassure us in our walk. We thank you that you care for us no matter where we are in our spiritual maturity. And we thank you that you have forgiven us. You have given us your power and you have given us the privilege to know your son. So Father, by your spirit, enable us to live as you have called us to live. Help us to speak truth in love and to have compassion on all people. Mold us more and more into the likeness of your Son, our Lord. We pray all of this through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.